Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show. A couple weeks ago, they announced a new Pokemon Snap. Literally, new Pokemon Snap was the name of the game. So, seems like a good as time as any to talk about Pokemon Snap on the podcast here. A lot of people are really nostalgic for that game in the 20 or so years since it first came out, way back on the Nintendo 64. I have a bit of a soft spot for the game myself, but I didn't really carry it with me growing up the same way I carried, say, the Banjo games. Pokemon is no stranger to having weird spin-offs. They've dabbled in puzzle-matching-type games, a strategy RPG, procedurally-generated dungeon crawlers, Tekken... Pokemon Snap predates all of them. This was way back in Generation 1, back when we only had that first 151 Pokemon to work with. For much of the world, there's still the only Pokemon to exist. And it turns out there are only 63 of them in Pokemon Snap. Get your pitchforks ready, Sword and Shield players. The high concept of the game is that Professor Oak is doing his best J. Jonah Jameson impression and telling you he wants pictures of Pokemon. So you, Todd Snap, get in this weird hovercraft thing and play through a number of on-rail levels, taking pictures of the local Pokemon as you go. I'd say Pokemon Snap is one of those games that's simple but deep. While you can just take pictures of Pokemon over and over, Professor Oak is going to rate your pictures, and he'll want you to meet certain criteria for the best scores. And it's not as simple as just timing everything right. Sometimes you have to interact with things in the level to create the picture-perfect moment. For instance, there's a volcano level, and you'll encounter Charmeleon at one point. If you use an item to knock him into a lava pool, it'll turn him into a Charizard, and a picture of that will be worth even more points. Or for a more involved example, there's a cave level, and every so often in that level you'll find some Jigglypuffs being troubled by other Pokemon. If you rescue all the Jigglypuffs, they'll reappear at the end of the stage and sing a little concert as a sort of trio, and the group photo is a goldmine for points. You'll unlock more items with the more progress you make and the higher scores you achieve, and this allows for more opportunities for prime photos. What's more, you have a limited time to accomplish any of this. As I described, the levels are on rails. Todd's hovercraft moves from start to finish, and if you missed a good photo op, well, uh, too bad, you'll have to replay the level. While that is annoying, it's part of the game's challenge, and the levels aren't too long to begin with. The stages all take place on the same island, this weird paradise of Pokemon. There are some implications of mankind, but not a lot. It's mostly wilderness. You explore a sunny beach, an abandoned mine tunnel, an active volcano, a swampy river, a large cave, and another river that goes through a rocky valley. The order in which you explore these stages makes... enough sense? Geographically, at least, you can find elements of one stage at the beginning or end of another stage. The only really weird one is the volcano and the river being right next to each other in the world order. There's nothing to suggest that they're close to each other, so it's kind of like they just gave up. 
Also, you kind of expect the volcano to be the last of the regular stages, but maybe that's just me playing too many Mario games. Another example of the game being deceptively deep is that advancing to the next stage isn't always a cut-and-dry process. To access the volcano, you have to find a secret exit from the tunnel. Same for entering the cave from the river. This culminates in finding an alternate exit from the valley that leads you to Professor Oak in the middle of an archaeological project. He asks Todd to replay every level and take photos of landmarks or phenomena that resemble different Pokemon. On the beach, it's a rock formation reminiscent of Kingler. In the tunnel, you have to activate a light at one point that shows a silhouette of Pinsir for some reason. In the volcano, there's a puff of smoke shaped like coughing. The river has a cubone-shaped tree. The cave has a fog cloud shaped kind of like Mewtwo. And there's a trio of hills in the valley that's shaped like a Doug Trio. And some of these are a little harder to find than others, but once you do, you unlock the final level, the Rainbow Cloud. It's a really long level with very little scenery and only one Pokemon, Mew. But Mew has a force field around it that makes photography impossible, so you spend much of the level wearing the force field down until hopefully you can get a good picture of Mew before it brings the force field back up or before the stage ends. So, yeah, sounds kind of annoying. I remember it not being a really fun process when I was exposed to the game as a child. I'm not really sure why taking pictures of those weird Pokemon landmarks allows you to access the Rainbow Cloud, and I'm not even sure why it's those Pokemon in particular... Also, I'm not even sure what the pincer silhouette is even supposed to be, because that's not really natural, that's man-made, because you gotta use the light to shine it somehow. And what, like, seriously, what do all these Pokemon even have to do with each other? Like, Mewtwo I kind of get, because it's based off Mew, but... Even then, why is there a constellation shaped like Mewtwo, a man-made Pokemon... Just one of those things that they don't really expect you to think about. They just kind of do it because it's a video game and you want to get to that final level, so they throw that at you. And that is basically Pokemon Snap in a nutshell. There's a bit more to the game than meets the eye, but not much more than that. It's a very simple game. You could come back to the game for hours, not days, but hours, trying to get the best shot even seeing how far your meddling with the environment can go. One thing I heard about, but I haven't seen for myself, was the idea that you can get Pikachu to ride on the back of one of the legendary birds. Good luck with that one. Now, the game isn't perfect. The shortness can bother some people, and Professor Oak's standards of photography can be a little finicky at times. He tends to favor keeping the Pokemon in the center of the shot, regardless of how good the photo would be otherwise. I'm guessing they really simplified the rules of good photography for a video game, because you you don't hear anything about, like, depth of field or anything like that, or or the one-third rule, or... Uh, whatever they tried to teach me in university photography class. Yet for all this time, for all these shortcomings, and for all these positives, there was never 
a remake of the game. It, it was it wasn't ever really hated, but just all this time without a remake just allowed fans of the game to be more and more vocal about how much they liked the game. And there was nothing. It was re-released on uh, it was the Wii Shop or the Virtual Console, one of those. But that's just a re-release. It's not a remake. There's, there's nothing different about it, really. We didn't get an actual sequel until the one they just announced here in 2020. And I find that a little weird. Not bad, but weird. Why did it take them so long? And why do it now, of all times? Why are they only now suddenly interested in revisiting the idea of Pokemon photography? I wonder if maybe it has to do with Pokemon Sun and Moon trying to do something like that with the Rotom decks, but that was really watered down. Maybe that got people thinking about it again? I'm not sure. But what can this new game even offer, is what I want to know. Well, I rewatched the trailer, and the very first thing you see in the trailer is a group of Buffalants. They're a Generation 5 Pokemon from Black and White. So, that's an immediate sign that they're not going to be sticking to just Generation 1, which is always a lingering fear I have with Pokemon content these days. I'm just really tired of seeing Generation 1 getting all the love. I've heard some people go, Why do they keep saying Generation 1 is overexposed? That's like complaining about Goombas in every Mario game. And to that, I say that Goombas aren't really part of Mario's central identity. But with Pokemon, it's uh, right there in the name. It's the Pokemon. Why keep making more and more if they're only ever confident in the first batch? It's great if your favorite is one of the originals, but... What about the person who really likes Empoleon? Sometimes you get a popular Pokemon from a later generation like Gardevoir or most notably Lucario. But as much as they occasionally throw the other generations a bone, the first batch still gets the most consistent love. I saw the gen- I saw the Detective Pikachu movie and it was pretty all right about it. They showed a lot of mons from various generations, but most of the important ones were still from the first generation. Anyway, to go back to Pokemon Snap, the game we're actually here to talk about, alongside the Buffalant are a bunch of Vivillians, which are from Generation 6. There's a Waylord at one point, that's from Generation 3, a Crab Rawler, that's from 7. At one point, there's even a Score Bunny, one of the Generation 8 starter Pokemon. So... While I still expect a bias towards Generation 1, this game is already taking advantage of the additional seven generations that have been added since the original Pokemon Snap. So we've got a lot more Pokemon to work with, and they seem aware of it. And of course, it's not complete until we see Pikachu in the trailer early on. I've said it before and I'll say it again, but I think that if they ever make a Pokemon game without Pikachu in it, someone at Game Freak gets taken out back and shot for their insolence. There's a caption in the trailer that says something like, These are the islands where Pokemon live, or something like that. Very paraphrased there. But it was the distinct plural, more than one island. So 
my first thought is that it's a Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon situation where the sequel gives you multiple themed locations instead of one big singular location. Or it could be as simple as every island being its own stage. It could be possible that every stage is actually bigger and longer than the stages from the original Pokemon Snap, taking around most, if not all, of an island. Of course, that's all speculation. As the trailer goes on, there's a lot of footage of a coastland, very reminiscent of the beach level from Pokemon Snap, but there's also a shot of a forest-looking place. Heck, there's that shot of all the Buffalants, which seems to take place in some kind of prairie. So that suggests to me that there'll be at least one new type of environment to explore, or at the very least they'll expand upon the old ones, because the beach stage in the first game had a bit of a grassy highland near the end, so it wasn't just sand and water. So it's a little hard to say if those are supposed to be part of the beach that we see in the rest of the trailer, or if they really are their own new stages. Another new detail I saw is the time of day. There are a few shots of the trailer that take place at nighttime and evening, and assuming these aren't cutscenes for whatever reason, it would be easy to set up a thing to make it so that there's a day and night system where... Pokemon can only appear for photo ops during the right time of day, or something like that. I have to wonder if it's something that the player control, or if it happens over the course of the stage. Like, you start at dawn and you end at night. I think putting it under player control invites more creativity, making people play the levels another time just to see new Pokemon and look for new secrets, effectively doubling the playtime in a cheap but believable way seems like the best of both worlds to me. Or at least if you're really into finding secrets and discoveries, but in a game where you're on a photo safari, I feel like that would be kind of important to have. The player character looks different for the very few frames he's in the trailer. I don't think that's Todd anymore. It looks kind of like the Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee male protagonist. Todd wasn't a big part of the game for me, so I don't mind too much, but it is a little bit of a shame to see him go. I guess Professor Oak wasn't bluffing in that Boundary Break episode when he said that he had to let Todd go. I actually wonder if we're going to see Professor Oak in this game, but Professor Oak is a big part of Pokemon Snap, at least in my memories of the game. They're just kind of entwined with each other. I hope that Pokemon Snap includes Professor Oak. The Pokemon games have consistently featured different gendered protagonists in all the games that came out after Snap, so I'm wondering if the protagonist will be customizable here, letting you pick between a boy and girl protagonist. They don't show too much more than that in the trailer, other than more glimpses of what different kinds of Pokemon exist in the game. Since the trailer only shows the beach stage and a few glimpses of a forest and a prairie, I'm guessing that these stages were the furthest ahead in development, because I don't I don't even recall seeing a release date for this game. They must still be working on it. We do see a Pukumuku eating an apple at one point, which suggests that throwing apples will be a returning mechanic. But it remains to be seen if Pester Balls and the Pokey Flute will come back too. They all serve a unique purpose in the original game, so I wouldn't mind seeing them come back, along with some new items to serve new purposes. It's 
been 20 or 21 years, they, surely they could think of some new items. The items were pretty neat because they allowed you to interact with the environment in different ways from each other, and you would get them later and later as the game goes, so even towards the end you could go back to the beach and find new Pokemon pictures because now you have the flute with you and stuff like that. And now we're going to touch on one of my bigger fears with this game. It's the fact that it's, uh, like I mentioned, it's been about 20 years since the last one. I'm not a huge Pokemon Snap guy, but a lot of people have been waiting for this game, even longer than the wait between Kingdom Hearts 2 and Kingdom Hearts 3, even though there were a lot of games between 2 and 3. And Pokemon fans are a little crabby right now, if not outright Kingler. I, I, I couldn't help myself. I have little self-control. But what I'm trying to say is, after Sword and Shield, a lot of Pokemon fans are disillusioned with the series. They have this narrative that Game Freak knows they're the top dogs and don't have to try anymore. That they'll throw out any low-quality game and expect it to sell like hotcakes because Pikachu's on the cover. This isn't helped by the way they emphasize a lot of weird apps and side games with such pomp and circumstance. This game was announced alongside some kind of toothbrushing app, I think, for Pokemon. Then a week later, they had an entire Pokemon Direct just for a MOBA game that's being developed by a company that has a lot of controversies surrounding it. That's not even going into the full cost of buying Pokemon bank account and paying for Nintendo Online as two separate things, just giving away that much more money, just transfer Pokemon from the 3DS to the Switch, with not all of them even being available in the Switch game, Pokemon Sword and Shield. So, so yeah, you can see that a lot of the grumbling and murmuring among the fan base isn't completely without merit, but it's still a little upsetting how bitter the Pokemon fandom can be. The Sword and Shield Fallout is going to be a shadow over the rest of the series, or at least for the next several generations to come. Generation 9 is going to get a lot of scrutiny over whether or not the full, complete National Pokedex is available. And even if the game succeeds in that regard... Generation 10 will have people going, well, I don't know, they might pull a sword and shield on us again. Every mainline game from now on will be tested against sword and shield. They're always going to refer back to those games. So you take these people, you give them a game they've been waiting for two decades on, there's going to be some expectations, and there is a harsh, unforgiving audience willing to be the judge. When I rewatched the trailer for this research, I watched the upload by GameSpot, the first three comments I see were all using Pokemon Snap to make fun of Pokemon Sword and Shield. The bra moment when you realize that this game will have a bigger dex than Sword and Shield. When a spin-off game gets you more excited than a main one. This game's an alpha, but it already looks better than Sword and Shield. Target practice, I tell you. Finally an actually happy fan comes out in, like, the fourth comment down from the top, some professional photographer, I suppose, talking about how the game first got them into photography. 
And that's actually really sweet. I, I like hearing little stories like that. I like hearing it a lot more than I like hearing people using the game to make fun of Sword and Shield. I would hope that fans don't assume that the Pokemon people have been working on this game for all of those 20 years. If they had been, then yeah, I'd understand there being a lot of high expectations. It'd be even bigger than Duke Nukem Forever, but I don't know how it'll go. The trailer looked promising, at the very least. Now to today's favorite songs. Professor Oak's Lab is a very nostalgic one for me. My dad, my brother, and I, we'd all regularly quote Oak saying, Welcome back! From every time you return to the hub from one of the levels. Like I mentioned before, Oak's role in this game is so integral to the game itself. It's even a big part of his character. Heck, I mentioned how in Boundary Break, they got Professor Oak to do some lines. They got the actor who reads Professor Oak in the English dub to do a guest spot as Professor Oak. That's really cool. As for the stage music, the beaches theme is pretty calming. It's very good opening level music. If you listen to me a lot, you know by now that I prefer wilder music, but it's good to have this nice and calm piece every once in a while. But if we want to go for something wilder, then I'd have to give a shout-out to the volcano theme. It's got a tune that's stuck with me to this very day. Those primal xylophones and the emphasis on woodwinds, they really work together. I don't often hear volcano music using woodwinds primarily, but it really helps to sell the whole wild safari vibe. And then there's the valleys theme, which has an inexplicable Wild West motif, but it really helps give the stage its own identity. And that's about all I have to say for Pokemon Snap. I don't know if I'll pick up new Pokemon Snap, but I am glad that that game is being worked on, that it will be a game that exists. Time will tell if it lives up to the first one. I don't have much of a bar for it to meet or not. It's, if it's good, it's good. That's That's my position on it. If you like listening to BitCast, be sure to follow me on Twitter, and be sure to subscribe to the show on Podcast One's website and mobile app. Thank you for listening, and I will see you on the next one. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.